Welcome to the Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast, brought to you by the Ruminations Radio Network and sponsored by Film Obsessive. This is the Tyree Film Movie Debate, hosted by two film critics, cool dads, and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan, and Will Johnson is a... Ooh, I don't want to say he's not under the weather, but he's uh, he's kind of weathering a tough school year. So we're uh, I'm fly, flying solo here to knock out a few new releases with a special guest I have with us returning to the show, Katie Glywell of The Blonde in Front. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> so Katie and I are going to kind of take a couple of series here to knock out some uh, recent new releases here in the fall that um, may or may not get some award season attention. I think there's some pieces and parts we hope they do. But uh, in the meantime, you know how our format works. We're damn glad to have you. This is all for tantrum's sake. We're shared passions and high fives wash away any place for hate. No matter what, we encourage you all to love what you love. But for now, the gloves are off in the hissy of the time. Uh, this week, first up, we're going to talk about A Haunting in Venice, the third Hercule Poirot uh, movie done by Kenneth Branagh. And uh, our format is this. The guest will go first. They will get five uninterrupted minutes to shower their praise and state their how many case. The hater will follow with five uninterrupted minutes of their own to present their counterpoints with any manner of intellectual scorch earth after that we'll open it up for about a half hour a shared conversation with his fit really gets chippy but with katie i don't know how chippy it's gonna get right we're not ruffling feathers here all right let's get to it haunting right, in venice you're the first five haunting in venice yes haunting in venice directed by kenneth Branagh and written by well at least screenplay michael green and based on uh, the book by Agatha Christie. Uh, Brana plays Hercule Poirot, the legendary detective. Uh, he is now in retirement in Venice, and he has a friend, uh, Tina Vey, who's trying to get him out of it. Uh, I like to say that I actually call this movie uh, the close-up in Venice because I feel like it had way more close-ups than any of the uh, two previous to it. Uh, Perot uh, reluctantly goes and ends up taking the case. Uh, there's mystery. There's a star-studded cast, as always. You have, I mean, Oscar winner Michelle Yeoh. You've got Jamie Dornan. Uh, sorry, as I then stopped to think of who else is in that. Uh, Kelly Riley. And, um, of course, uh, Kenneth, who... I don't know what he did with this one, but damn, the main thing I noticed about this film is, wow, they really focused on how dreamy blue his eyes were. Uh, I don't know why that needed to be the um, focal point of a lot of the scenes that he was in, but I was just mesmerized by that. Uh, I think the production design was absolutely fantastic. I thought the cinematography was um, was beautiful. Uh, for me, this is the best of the three that I've seen of these Agatha Christie uh, KB-directed films. Uh, I definitely think it is worth seeing in the theater. Now, with the mystery, uh, is it as obvious as the other two? I would say... I would say with uh, Death of the Nile and Mystery on um, the Orient Express, those I think had more were much more complex for me. I kind of figured this out right away. Uh, at least you know what the big reveal was supposed to be. I didn't think that was that, and I I mean I'd have to say it has to be with the book. I was surprised with the uh, kills in the film. I did not. I mean I'm not 
I love Agatha Christie. I say that, yet I've never, I don't think I've ever read any of her novels. But with this film, I was actually surprised by uh, the deaths. That was something that I think uh, was much bigger with the outcome than the past two films. But yeah, for me, I think this is definitely worth seeing in the theater. I think it is, again, the um, best of the three that he's done. Uh, not to give a spoiler, there's definitely, I feel like there's going to be more. I really hope uh, seeing Tina Fey in this and then also Murray's in the building. I mean, look, uh, no offense, but if they're going to do, I, I mean, they released it today that they're going to do a Murder, She Wrote film. Uh, Miss Faye, mm. I think you need to be uh, the Angela Lansbury character because you have a knack for just completely devouring every scene you're in. And I loved you in them, uh, or, or in, at least in this. So I would pick her as, um, I forget Angela Lansbury's character in Murder, She Wrote. If you know it, Don, please help. Uh, oh, but, gosh, I don't know. But I'll look at it while you finish. I know. I, it's like it's right on the top of my right on the tip of my tongue. And I'm like, Ugh. but uh, I mean, it's got a solid, solid cast. Again, production design, uh, the score. Like, honestly, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing, like what he's able to do and change every look of these um of the films with Agatha Christie. I look forward to a fourth and fifth one and I hope he does them because you know despite I think the mustache is a little different in this one. I think he will keep continuing to do her Perot and I am all for it. So I recommend this movie. Uh I recommend seeing it in the theater. I know when we saw it for our press screening it was a blast with the swag oh, yeah. and the whole atmosphere that we had. Um, and I think it's definitely um, something you can see with um, friends and get that spooky time, especially for Halloween, since it's set for Halloween. Uh, so, yeah, Don, uh, let me know what you think. Uh, well done, Kitty. I'm, I, I can't be the hater slot here. I'm right with you. Uh, this is... Uh, a very very good film and that I that I completely enjoyed. I I really respect what Kenneth Branagh is doing as a as an artist. Um, he's kind of now taken in his career here as a director to uh, fantastic British writers and kind of made the made their works pieces of his own between his extensive work in the past on Shakespearean films where you can tell the level of respect, um, not just national pride, but the level of artistic respect is there from Kenneth Bragg. And then here he is making his third uh, Agatha Christie of, you know, and Perot film where he's got, yeah, he just has it. Like he, he, he's creative enough to come in, give it his own, you know, he's an experienced filmmaker. He's not some bum and rookie. He's not just a writer trying to be a director. I mean, he knows what he's doing with the camera and with people. He obviously can attract fantastic people and a great cast to go with him. And he does so in each of these films. And that's been the fun part about it where I'm with you. Um, give me a fourth, give me a fifth. He can do these till the day he dies. Um, it, I, Kenneth Branding, this, there are two play there. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it with the Shakespeare and now with Christie, these are two things he does absolutely right that no one else is attempting to do. And I, he's got the carte blanche for me to go ahead and do it. You know, um, if he wanted to come back and do Shakespeare at his age, it'd be great too. But uh, yeah, it's one of it's on the list of one of those things where there are certain things. Some people do just really, really right. You can put like Tom Cruise playing Ethan Hunt. 
never, no one needs to do that character again. Um, and I know we've had many versions of Perot, um, uh, and whatnot between BBC television and, what, and others, you know, places and, and even older films, but, um, yeah, Kenneth is on to something and he's just a, an absolute season pro where it just works out great. The film itself, um, I'm with you. It, it is a tight, good. I mean, this thing was done like an hour and 45 minutes where, um, a tight little mystery, uh, singles, you know, pretty much a single setting kind of thing. And, um, I didn't figure, well, I, I have figured it out, but then it's only because I'd done the book. So, um, this movie is based on a book It's based on the book Halloween party, which, um, I'll kind of do the background of the book here just for a second. I'll save some of it for the discussion after this, but, uh, I will say that the book, um, the book is much more isolated and definitely less lavish than this in terms of setting in place where um what what brannick has done and what screenwriter has done here is um this is addition by subtraction i gotta tell you from the book where this is one of christie's kind of late career you know in the 1960s where you know she was 60 and it, it's just uh it's not as good um you can and it was reviewed kind of poorly back in the day where this is a you know I think we always see that uh, Lisa Simpson uh, meme where it's like, you know, hey, we should remake, you know, do do remakes of bad books and bad movies and not remakes of good books and good movies. And this is kind of one of those cases where Kenneth Bryan comes in, takes a subpar Christie novel and and gives it some sizzle, gives it gives it some life, um, brings great actors to bring into those, you know, to imbue those characters and give it some give it some zest and to, and to set the thing in Venice. Uh, the original book is set in like a suburb of London where it's real boring and countryside. So, I mean, you got Venice doing Venice. So all of that is a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, I, I just think this is a wheelhouse that he's created that he, he owns. Um, Christie's one of those writers and these stories are so classic and the mysteries are so good where yes, go ahead and, you know, uh, have other generations come back, make these into period pieces the way they are me being made now. But, um, Brian's got his stamp here on this one, and, it, and it's a good stamp. Um, I'm with you. I think this is the best of the three he's done, which leads me to the place where, like, can't wait to see what he does next. Um, the other thing that I, I got a credit for here a little bit is, uh, I think I mentioned it earlier, but just casting. Um, he always brings, yeah, I know he brings stars, but he doesn't bring, like, over obvious stars. Like, this is an Ocean's 14 right here. He's um he's bringing in key good people that can play different roles and have a little bit of ambiguity to them a little on where they can like michelle yo is a get for this movie uh even um even our girl miss riley is a, is a get for this movie coming off of yellowstone so uh, yeah i mean he just he picks the right people for the right places and still gives us enough uh, pizzazz to kind of still make this a movie and an event and while a lot of people were disappointed that this wasn't like a you know a full-on horror movie and i don't think you were ever going to get there with a christie film like there's murder but you're not going to get like I don't know what blood and guts they thought was coming. So for the Halloween season, um, this one counts more as spooky and suspenseful than it does because there's supernatural elements here. But um, if, this is not going to be the exorcist believer, and that's okay. There's a lane for this, and it works mm -hmm. really, really well. Uh, but yeah, uh, let's talk more about it after a short break here. Hey, this is Charlie, Triple C, from Brevity Box, a new and interesting podcast from the Ruminations Radio Network. If you're a fan of podcasts, we have a lot of great content to offer. Come check out our diverse group of podcasts and hosts at ruminationsradionetwork.com. All right, welcome back. Yeah, Katie, um, I I'll jump in and say it. Yeah, I read the novel. The novel is um, really boring. It's um, it's all surrounding a um, um, a murder of a girl at a at a well-to-do Halloween party where they were drowned bobbing for apples, much like 
Perot kind of shadows this part in the movie. Uh, he doesn't die and no one dies by way of bobbing for apples or drowned or anything like that. But that's the whole impetus of the of the novel is, you know, who would who would ever kill a girl uh, over, you know, bobbing for apples at a Halloween party. And but this girl was kind of spouting off in the Halloween party that she she has seen a murder and that she's seen a few things. And then she's kind of that braggart kid that no one likes. And, you know, who would kind of, you know, knock off the braggart, you know, annoying kid. But hold on a second. Did we, we said she said she saw a murder. And so it's Perot takes that opportunity to be like to investigate the old murder it's kind of unsolved to kind of see where that can connect to the current murder, because is that an old murder getting covered up by, you know, knocking off this girl? So it's, yeah, it's a drier, less interesting, you know, foppish British people kind of murder mystery with old flashbacks of history of, of little town, this little town that is not very exciting. It is one of those where you can kind of pick it up from the beginning. Like, Oh yeah, it's going to be this person. Um, so the novel kind of, it's pretty basic as well. So to have this movie, you know, join, you know, narrow the cast down to just this Halloween party, put it in one setting and location versus the flashbacks and all the BS in the book. And, and yeah, like I said, the, the decadence of Venice. Yeah. This is a massive improvement from the book. I must say. Interesting. That is very yeah. interesting. And it is one thing about this film is like you have a mystery within a mystery within a mystery. Like it's yeah. not only one thing going on. Actually, there's four or five going on oh, yeah. that you find out and that are revealed, which I do have to say, I mean, that's a layer upon layer upon layer, which mm -hmm. one or two of them I got, but the other two, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm impressed that, yeah, that really says a lot. And I forgot to mention Jude Hill, who yeah. the last time I saw him, was with uh, Jamie Dornan, who also mm -hmm. played his father in Belfast. He, I think, is, uh, besides Tina Fey, I thought he was an amazing standout. Yeah. Like, I honestly did not recognize him from Belfast. And yet when I was watching him, I was like, oh, that is where I know you. Mm -hmm. Hello. I'm glad I'm seeing you again in a film. And this is telling me I hope I get to see you even more and if it's with jamie Dornan and he keeps playing your father right. <laughs> you know what even better i think you guys yeah. make an amazing duo and their relationship and what ends up happening to me honestly was the saddest part of the film yeah. like that was i don't want to you know no spoilers give anything away although this film has been out for a little while but that is a very uh sad ending that um or a sad uh, realization that I did not see coming. So kudos mm -hmm. to them for writing that. Yeah, the um, that that plays well. You know, I was wondering because based knowing the book, I'm like, how many children could they possibly kind of bring in here and kind of waste our time with a little bit? But for it to just be, um, for it just to be Little Hill was was really was really well done. And again, match with Dorno's good. The standout for me that I just did not see coming. To kind of give a, a little sizzle to what could have been a, a boring role, I like Kyle Allen. Um, I think Kyle Allen from the Map of Tiny Perfect Things and West Side Story did a nice job playing the the jilted, you know, um, I don't almost gold digging ex fiance of the previous death in this household that that comes into play with this movie and whatnot. I, I liked his um, 
I like this haughtiness. I like this vulnerable haughtiness. Like uh, he, he could easily just come in and be the a-hole, but he comes in and, and he still is the asshole. But at the same time, he you can tell he's got some layers. He's got some storminess going on behind there. And we we get revealed some of that there and it plays out well. And I, I just like his part where he just comes in. Uh, mo- you know, most people in this Halloween party are coming in with some grief and with some dourness to like the proceedings. Cause we have a seance we have the Halloween, we have this nervousness of the storm and he's kind of coming in just hot. You know, he's coming, coming in with some sizzle coming in with some attitude. And I, and I appreciate that in a movie where, you know, everyone can kind of walk around with, with the shrug emoji, the whole movie and he doesn't. And I'm kind of cool with that. So I was impressed by Kyle. Allen. I thought he did a nice job. I could see that. Uh, someone else that actually surprised me was Ricardo. Scarmaccio, who plays mm-hmm. uh, Hercule Perros, I'm butchering this. Sorry, everybody. Um, who plays um, Perros uh, bodyguard? And to me, I knew him from John Wick Two. That's yeah. honestly the only thing that I had known him for and recognized him for. But to see him in this, I don't know. His he just had more of a he had a a, a bigger presence. I feel like uh-huh. in this film. It just, I, for me, he just seemed more menacing, which is funny considering that the yeah. role that he played in John Wick too. But I just felt like he just seemed to me like bigger and like yeah. more of a threat than I found him in John Wick too. I don't know sure. why. Kind of uh, laying in the weeds, not front and center, right? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's supposed to be like, you know, don't mess with this, you know, my main guy mm-hmm. and stuff. And, I mean, it's a smaller role. He didn't have many lines, and yet he was someone that really, I thought, uh, his presence was known whenever he was on screen. Yeah. I got to echo you with the the kudos to Tina Fey. I mean, Tina Fey, this is, the movie's set in 1947, so two years after World War II. She kind of plays this very, um, I don't want to say eccentric, but just kind of this... Um, pushy braggadocio kind of you know uh, murder mystery writer who is kind of borrowed it seems like the plot is there that she's kind of borrowed some of the persona and plots of the real life mysteries that Hercule Poirot has solved and, and turned them tr- attempted to turn them or spin them into some of the novels and plots she's done um in the Christie books she is a recurring character who shows up in many different adventures which is kind of fun because man I would I would take a team I would take this teamwork again between Faye and 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 Brannick. Um, I'm with you. Like if she wants to play murder, she wrote a uh, character named Jessica Fletcher. You Jessica know, Fletcher. Of, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> professional writer, amateur sleuth using her intellect and charm that, I mean, you say intellect, you say charm. That's Tina Fey where 15 years ago, she would have made a dynamite Lois Lane go. Now that she's, you know, North of certain ages, the women were casting and whatnot. And I know she's not as British as Angela Lansbury, but if you're doing an American murder, she wrote, yeah, sign up Tina Fey in a hurry. If you don't get her, and you have to go British. Uh, is Emily Blunt too young? Because I think she'd be a blast too. I would not. Yeah, uh, I could actually see her. Uh, someone else that I feel like is someone who needs to be playing Emily Blunt's sister in every single movie they ever <laughs> yeah. have sister um, is Eve uh, um, Hewsome, who I just saw in oh, yeah. uh, Flora and Son. I'm seeing her go. on screen, and it's like. Those two, uh, you guys need to play family members like mm. yesterday. <laughs> yeah. I guess if you but, need older than Emily Blunt, I mean, Renee yeah, Zellweger I would, would say, I mean, who knows? Like the way, uh, the way things, it's interesting to know stuff that <laughs> when I think of uh, Murder, She Wrote, I don't even want to know how old Jessica Fletcher is supposed to be. 
because yeah. I always think about when they talk about how old uh, the actresses that were playing the characters in um, Golden Girls and how oh, yes. they were like 54 and 56 yeah. and 53. And it's like, so they were um, the same age as Jennifer Aniston and yeah. like Courtney. Um, it's like all these yeah, women. They and are it's now. Like, Many, many changes in 30 years. So it's like, yeah, yeah. I feel like, uh, seriously, Hollywood, listen to this, uh, listen to this podcast, Tina Fey, uh, you help write it because you need that credit. And I'm not, I say you need that credit, but I can't see anyone writing those, that dialogue better than you can. Right. Uh, and I can see here just killing a Jessica Fletcher, mm -hmm. uh, in the millennium. Oh, no. To, no to pun intended. Age. Oh, it's all right. To throw the age note, Lansbury crossed her 60th birthday in the second season of Murder, She Wrote, okay. so 60. But again, they make her look like this, you know, spinny little lady. But you're right, the, the makeup work to adjust yet age the ladies and golden girls always cracks me up. Um, no, it, it, yeah, I got to say, again, like just the, um, the novel, the novel just kind of has this one crime and then this one past crime. This movie kind of has that past crime, or at least the past mystery of what happened to the the matriarch of the house's daughter and and how that could be involved here. That's the seance that gets things going. Um, I do got to say the the novel has none of the supernatural hints and elements going on in this movie, which is a super duper injection of energy that, again, raises this this the source novel up to something cooler and better where the, the whole seance character with, with Michelle Yeoh, I think Michelle Yeoh's character doing a seance was, was in the book, but not to this grand level of being the thing. Um, and definitely isn't the one getting knocked off. Um, but no, like that it's, it's really cool because like the way that we find out why Perot gets to a point where he starts to see a few things and push a few things and, and realize a few things that he would never consider being logical, real or otherwise, um, despite the roots of where that comes from to have that be in play theatrically, so to speak, or cinematically, so to speak, where the hints of the supernatural are here is, is a bump from the usual, just, you know, again, people standing around shrugging, going who done it, you know, and it, it, where it raises it from being just a formal version of clue, which is fun. So the supernatural element was a, was a blast here for me where, again, spooky, not scary, violent or anything crazy, but just enough to get your wheels turning, make you wonder, make Perot wonder, therefore getting you to kind of be hooked on it, too. Yes. And I'm going to give a shout out to Harris. I'm going to I'm going oh, yeah. to try not to butcher the last Tough name. Zamber Lucas, who is the Got director it. of photography. Uh, absolutely stunning with the because the majority of the film is done um using candlelight and i think yes. it was just done beautifully uh candlelight fire um you know fire mm -hmm. fire ugh, i'm just stuttering <laughs> you um, good the, yeah the <laughs> uh the light from a fireplace and then um the storm but i think uh that is a gorgeous look and i really uh again excels this film above the others uh yeah like i mean i've talked to people about this and uh they've agreed they do think that uh this film out of the three is the top one so i mean yeah, if he just keeps getting better and better you know i look forward to it and i you know i'm wondering what the next christie novel he could possibly direct same 
Um, you can tell he's not really telling them in any kind of order, like to move this one from the sixties to 1947 works just fine. And, uh, but yeah, Harris does a great job. Um, I know you mentioned close-ups earlier where they, they definitely bring some people in the close-ups and put some sharpness to those moments, but yet he'll balance that with those kind of stretched wide lens views that almost feel like you're in a Yorgos Lanthimos movie where we're watching the lobster, we're watching, you know, the favorite and stuff like that, where when you're in a room that's kind of being lit by small things to stretch back and get the shadows of everything with some wide lens, with, with some wide lenses was fun. And of course you got Brandon, who's going to Dutch angle and tilt a few things every now and then. Um, another shout out, I got to say to kind of give this film a little more edge that we're talking about. Um, Brandon's usual score collaborator is Patrick Doyle. And Patrick Doyle makes beautiful music. You know, Henry V, Cinderella, Thor, um, Great Expectations. Like he makes sumptuous little scores that can kind of use a full orchestra, go, go slow, go fast. He's got some triumphantness where he wants to, but, um, for this one, Brannick brought in Joker composer, um, and here, uh, my turn to butcher name, Hildor Guandetier. And um, that darker style of like shredded strings kind of score, again, gives this movie some edge that you that didn't that it didn't have before in the first two. And that's a lot of fun. Agreed. And yeah, as um, it's thank you for pointing out, like the um, yeah. when I wrote down, it's like the close up of Venice. One of the, and I honestly wonder if one of the reasons why Brannick did that is because each area that you're in, I mean, no matter where you are that they shoot in Venice, it's just so detailed and ornate. Mm -hmm. And especially in the house that Kelly Riley owns. I mean, oh, yeah. It's just gorgeous. So, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I honestly think one of the reasons why Brannick did a number of the close ups is because. If not, it's like the viewer is just, you've got so much to look at. It almost can be too much. It's like, all right, so let's just focus on this actor's yeah. face. And personally, I like that, especially when they had, you know, the candlelight. It's like, it's got that doom and kind of doom and gloom, the mystery, you know, where are the eyes darting and um, that kind of essence that the film has that spookiness and mystery to it. Mm -hmm. No, I like how, um, just um, you said Venice and the details that it shows is really sharp. Where and we're and we're having fun because it's post World War II Venice, where you know the you remove some technology. Not that they have you know, not that Venice is covered in cell phone towers and antennas and stuff like that. But like you know, Venice is a city that looks classically gorgeous and all that. And yet, Branding's still there, kind of punching us with the like, hey, murder and violence is coming. We're like, I love that. What is it? The seagull in the opening five openings, you know, credits of the movie where you know we're watching the the beautiful squares and. And, you know, and uh, the pigeons hanging around and then a seagull comes in and eats one up which, and an ear splitting shriek of the music comes in and it just sets that tone. And by the time we get to the party and we get to the night of the things that are happening on, we're in we're in wet and dingy. You know, there's a storm. All the beauty and, and niceness and polish that is Venice becomes just ugly on the outside and then therefore kind of a little bit ugly on the inside. And um, I, I'm curious. I didn't look up this note. Um, I'm curious if that is a if those are sets. Or if they found a great old house location, even if it's not in Venice, like with the with the walls, the frescoes, the, the heights, the balconies, like the, the curvatures and whatnot. Like, I got to know where they made this movie. But uh, I have to look that up while you're talking next. Yeah, go ahead. You know what? I'm not sure. And I do want to say that, uh, again, I keep going back to the two previous films. But I mean, you know, this yeah. is a three first. So, I mean, you're going to, you know, look at that. I have to say that it, I think of the three films, this one has one of the 
this one has one of the most brutal deaths um, mm. in any of the three. I don't yeah. want to. I don't know if we should do the spoiler for it or not. But I was not expecting when it happened that that's the way it happened and who ended up doing the killing. That was mm. a giant shock to me, and I yeah. just thought it was just. Uh, it, it's just brutal, and I, I was, I was a little bit like, "Wow, that, that's something that I just okay. This is a surprise. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I was. This is not something that I thought was happening. Should yeah. I say it or no? Um, that's a fair question. Um, well, I mean, it's no mystery because it's the first, you know, fifteen minutes of the movie. It's the, I think the, the. The circumstances that, of course, lead to the culprit is more interesting than, oh, that's the one that died. So go for it. Tell us all. Well, there's that, but that's yeah. not the one I'm talking about. Oh, all right. Well, then maybe we got to stay spoiled. We've come this far. Should I spoil it? Uh, go for it. It's a Well, I will say this. It is the... I don't know if this is, I mean, Murder on the Orient Express only had one death. I believe mm -hmm. that Death on the Nile had four. Yeah. This one has, not including, if you include what the reason why we're at the house, that would be right. five people that yeah. die in yeah. this one, I believe. Am I, if I'm correct, yes, no? I think you're right. Five sounds right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the death that surprised me the most and okay. the um who ended up being the culprit was the fourth death. So the death that's next to last. Okay. Okay. That's the one that I thought, I mean, considering how it happened, why it happened to me was one of the most brutal things that I've seen actually mm -hmm. in a number. I mean, in, in a while that, yeah. and that and takes a lot for still... me to be like, Wow. <laughs> yeah. And we're still in PG-13 territory where, yeah. you know, we've got some brutality that's bloodless. Well, bloodless because it has to be or we'd be straight to R. But uh, yeah, that's that's a good pick there. Good job seeing the number of death without spoiling it. That keeps it. Yes, for the viewers. that's the thing. Um, I don't want to spoil it. Yeah. But it is I would it's either the fourth death in the film or the third death in this film. Yeah. But I feel like it's okay. the fourth. Okay. Um, I did look up kind of the shooting location. So some interiors were shot at a conservatory of music, Marcello in, in Venice, and then a Gothic style museum called the Palazzo Ducal in Venice. But for the most part, the interiors were at Pinewood studios in London, which is your, your James Bond, your star Wars studio, which can do the big stuff. So there's a good chance there that entire building is, you know, was done in, in walls and walls and lights in London. And that's just fine. Cause I mean, again, the, like the arches, the curves, the the weatheredness of the house, like they did a great job. And and again, to set the kind of the storm outside to give it some, you know, to wash it from the outside while keeping the dinge inside look great. Well, then uh, you know, let's give another shout out then to yeah. um, head of production design John Paul mm -hmm. Kelly because yeah, yeah, that was one of my favorite aspects of the film. I mean, it's just so intricate and beautiful and spooky, mm -hmm. and also it's it. I mean, you can almost smell it when you're in the yeah. theater. Oh, like, good one. Like, what yeah. that must, it's like, you know, with the water, but it's also 
this is a beautiful home that is like been kind of left to rot by the owner only because of the despair and agony that she's in over uh the death of her daughter and that's mm-hmm. the reason why they everyone comes in for a seance and right. you can feel that and uh you can i mean you can almost taste it in the air when people come in uh not to mention the fact that the whole building in the uh they do the legend and how that used to be a children's hospital and mm-hmm. so many kids died and stuff like that and i'm like again you know sometimes the movies that we're seeing the stories that they tell inside the film is actually a movie i would want to see yeah. it's like that sounds Definitely. horrible yeah uh, but you know again this is beautiful storytelling that you have this visual landscape that uh these people that know their craft are doing so well. So mm-hmm. kudos, kudos, Brana. I honestly, I really hope that your Hokupuro keeps on going because uh, again, I just love to see who he gets in the films and it's yes. just a tour de force. Oh, I know. No, I, I got to give credit. Uh, my credit, final credit kind of goes to the writer. Um, again, as the person who read this novel, because I once I saw this movie's coming, I'm like, I'm going to go find that source novel, get the audiobook and knock it out. It's a short little six hour read. But again, you change from dreary London to, you know, kind of um, lavish Venice and you and you reduce the cast, reduce all the, the loose ends and whatnot and kind of keep everybody over in one crazy night in one house. It is just super effective in terms of being a tight thriller. All the stuff you mentioned about like this children's hospital or orphanage backstory, none of that's in the book. It's, it's, it's brilliant that that's the, the scope they gave around what this is. And, and for the fact that they don't even use the murder that's in Christie's book, where you just kind of use this idea of a Halloween party, kind of half a seance, your writer buddy tagging you, you know, your writer rival t- tagging along. And for Brannigan, I, again, that screenwriter is it, um, you mentioned earlier, Michael Green, who's done Logan, done lots of things. He's an Academy Award nominee. For their invention of all these things, um, again, it's rare that we talk about novels that are improved by their movies, but this is one of them. And I'm impressed. I'm with you. Make them to the day you die, Kenneth. These are great movies. Well, look at that. We're agreeing on two, on, you know, this film already. So huzzah. (laughs) I know, right? Well, Katie, tell the good folks where they can find you on social media. You can find the blonde in front on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. And I also do uh, video reviews with postmortem radio and radio of horror. Nicely done. All right. That closes us up here. So, folks, oh, we now have merch. I can announce and say that from here. Uh, we have shirt stickers, all kinds of different things. Find some sweet cinephile hits of it swag on tpublic.com slash user slash ruminations radio network. We are uh, we have our store moved over underneath the shingle of the rest of our fine podcasts that are in the network. And uh, that's where you can find some sweet looking swag and gear there. Uh, in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at cinephile fit on Facebook at cinephile his fit podcast and on Instagram at cinephile fit. Find both of us, Will and I on Letterboxd to check out our film reviews and ratings. We are also on Rotten Tomatoes. At least the show is. We are charter members at the side of the Independent Film Critics of America. Thank you so much for your local loyal leadership in our Tussles and for connecting with us on social media. Cinephile Hissifit is a Ruminations Radio Network podcast sponsored by Film Obsessive and 25 Well Media. If you enjoyed this show, the Ruminations Radio Network has more exciting programming with stellar hosts and spirited topics. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show and others on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you find your favorite podcasts.